What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes on the foreign policy scene. My name is Hunter Marston, uh, and in lieu of Van Jackson this week, we have guest host James Palmer. Uh, we have Kiara Mitchell. Hello. And Alex Audi. Okay. Uh, James, I'll kick it over to you to get started. Thanks, Hunter. So I wanted to kind of launch off today by just taking a quick look at the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Not really the crisis itself, because um, I'm not certain if any of us here are actually Russianists. I know I'm not, but at what, it, but at the kind of scope of punditry it's given, because it's really at the ideal stage for like the the Washington take. Nothing has actually really happened, but a lot of things could happen, um, and a lot of th- and there's a lot of kind of stuff out there that you can that you can draw on where you can bring in you know your own pet takes your own pet hopes and so you know i find at this stage like i'm pretty much convinced by whatever argument i've read last um to be honest on this you know i see these arguments you know uh see these arguments made that by like uh the michael cutman piece that like that russia has a clear attack plan that there's something that you know there's clear advantages to be gained and I'm like, well, you know, that seems plausible. That seems, you know, this all seems very informed and knowledgeable and so on. Um, and then I see pieces, you know, like the one I ran by Jeff Horn uh, a few days ago in Foreign Policy saying this is overblown. There's not actually evidence of strong troop movements that Russia doesn't have the, Russia doesn't have the Air Force in place. This is, uh, this is bluster, like created by a combination of a Western fear-mongering about Russia and Russia's own nationalistic bullshit. Um, and... I think there's a real danger, you know, when we come into kind of doing a, you know, FP work on this, in that it really is all nebulous at the moment. It's all this possibility, all this sense of w- what could be, and we're making and we're doing the classic thing of, you know, making these judgments too that are so orientated around like Putin. What does Putin think? What does he want? This kind of where it becomes this sort of, you know, armchair psychoanalysis of these like powerful men, which I feel is often one of the least productive things we, you know, can be doing. Um, but it's very hard to avoid in a case like this. And, you know, on the, you have this situation, too, in which people have immense amounts at stake. Um, you know, obviously, lo- lots of people have friends in Ukraine, family in Ukraine, are looking at a situation where they could be literally seeing their families fleeing or, you know, caught in urban war zones, which is not the case, to be honest, with a lot of the conflicts that we, we talk about. But um, Ukraine has these particularly strong ties to the... To, like the DC Russianist world, so many people have spent time there. It's kind of become a little bit like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan were in that sense, and that you had this very like, personal institute as well as institutional involvements and ties. But there's also kind of a this, you know, almost sense of excitement brewing about it. Like Washington loves the smell of war. Like, not and I'm not saying this in kind of you know the pure leftist like American warmongering way. I'm saying that people get excited about what could happen. People get this kind of, people get this sort of thrill of conflict and because it, it justifies like the work they do. It justifies the things that they think about. Um, and I think like the, that, I don't quite want to say enthusiasm, but that like, that like something is happening feel can, can really drive people. Yeah, can really, can really generate this sort of uh, energy. Um, so I'm just curious as to you know what else have people seen on the on the crisis? What, how are you, you know, coming from all these different fields, like feeling about it and about the ways that media is uh, media are tackling it? 
Yeah, I think that that really helps to get us started here, James. So I, I take a lot of cues from the pundit class uh, who I've been listening to and reading, particularly folks like uh, Corey Shockey at the American Enterprise Institute, who I've heard express the view that, you know, Putin has overplayed his hand here. And, you know, the Biden administration has actually scrambled. Uh, and the challenge has also coalesced a stronger NATO unity rather than a weaker Uh NATO uh, against Putin's designs, at the same time that Ukraine has uh, seen its own sort of nationalist impulses brought into play by Russian aggression here. So rather than seeing a weak and disunited West, uh, as Putin might have calculated, he's actually confronting quite a robust response here. Um, are, are we including Germany in this? Because I mean, you know, I, I see all this kind of like, you know, uh, meme image around the the, you know, the here the United Front and then the Germans are like hot, busy busy like blocking Estonian uh, exports right. of arms and this kind of thing. Um, do you think that that and you know Germany clearly has this like long term strategic weakness having of being so dependent upon Russian energy, like having these very clear you know motivations to to avoid what could be a pretty bad crisis if that gets cut off. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose you're right. Uh, so we, if we bar Germany from this, uh, and, and perhaps France too, which has its own election coming up. Um, but the thing with Germany, right, is that we have a new party for the first time or a new coalition in power for the first time in, in many years. So it's really testing uh, that leadership, which has not formed a coherent foreign policy doctrine. Um, and, and this also presents a major challenge to the Biden administration, which has tried to repair its relations with uh, Western European countries with whom the Trump administration uh, had sort of soured uh, traditional alliances and partnerships. Um, so yes, Germany is certainly not united on this topic from, from my own very limited understanding uh, of, the, of the issue, but it does seem that NATO and, and, and Washington are in close consultation on this. And the fact that the House of Representatives is scrambling to get a defense, major defense package in line for uh, assistance to Ukraine shows that I think there's still a range of options. As, as you pointed out, I think um, we haven't really seen tangible uh, indication of, of what's to come just yet. These, these are perhaps early days, even if it feels like every day's news uh, reveals something new and that this is a very fast evolving uh, situation. So let's say that this the sort of de-escalation works, that we, we come through this without seeing anything more than maybe, you know, a little bit of increase um, in aid to the to the fighters in the in uh, eastern Ukraine. Do both sides get to say that they were right? Because the the sort of, you know, the um, the deterrent side gets to say, well, this worked, we deterred, we deterred Russia. And then the, the this was all over blonde side gets to say, well, actually, Russia never found this. And how, you know, can we ever actually know? And this is one of these interesting questions, I think, in deterrence as a whole. Like, how do you ever know that deterrence worked? How can you be certain that the threat was there in the in the first place? Like, what do we, how do we, how do we count the stuff that didn't happen? And Alex, Kara, I'm interested to hear kind of your, your takes on this and on like, like when do we, judge deterrence as effective and how do we judge deterrence as effective? I guess it's we just have to wait and see until afterwards and see the kind of languages that come out of both DC and the Kremlin, what their kind of perspectives on it all are after whatever does happen or doesn't happen happens, I suppose. So you think we can, we, it's sort of, you know, to some extent, Russia's at least more leaky, you know, I'm very used to dealing with, with China where 
at best we get our inside information 25 years afterwards when somebody writes you know writes a memoir um from exile um but with russia at least there's the possibility of leakiness of people like giving the well we were actually planning this but then we saw joe biden give a really good speech kind of you know stuff that we can act, make a little bit more judgment on this i guess yeah i guess i'm i've been very politically switched off for the past few months just for basically needed to take a step back for my own mental health because of the chaos of the world so with this happening i see the news notifications come through on my phone and it's just like just putting the heads in the hand and just wanting to scream it's strange i guess because this seems like such a you know morally clear conflict in so many ways when it comes to who is the aggressor and who is the defender but the, I, I, do you think that people are seeing this just through an, the the sort of lens of 20 years of us fuck-ups yes. i mean are we is, is, is everybody still seeing this through the lens of iraq yes so i think they're still seeing through oh the us is going to go fuck up this country again like all the other countries they have been in in the past 20 odd years they have gone in and fucked it up i feel this is one of the first things that you know any foreign policy professional learns is that the un is useless and should die like as uh, you know, I'm not not to state the case strongly, but the U.S. is a trash organization. But the U- United Nations is a trash organization, full of idiots and bureaucrats. You know, mm-hmm. it's these sort of these sort of basic facts you learn um, in in a uh, in one o in a international relations one o one. I'm I'm semi joking, um, but I do recall the time that it, I, I do think model UN does an awful lot to illusion people about the world. And uh, that's not always a great thing. I, I remember, um, you know, talking to someone who had was very kind of typical, you know, idealist um, had, and had had their first experience of working with the UN after like a week trying to, and this was not a huge traumatic event. This was trying to organize a conference and they were just sitting head in their hands, just going, they're all such bastards. They're all such bastards. But yeah, I think that like this, this, you know, this is this is one of the big US problems, really, which is being, you know, this sort of de facto world policeman role in a in, in where there isn't anybody else doing it and nobody really wants it. And um and so the times when there actually is a you know a useful fun- like a useful humane function, that, that reputation like carries with it um so many like so many problems. Well, you know, this this might this strikes me that it might be a good segue into this debate over liberalism versus realism that uh, foreign policy had uh, published on recently. So this reminds me of a debate we've had within the pages of foreign policy recently between uh, Stephen Walt, um, the perennial realist, who's one of our most popular, deservedly so, foreign policy economists, and Sever Gunitsky, who's a uh, professor of political science and at I think the University of Toronto, both very good, smart writers. Um, I say that about all my writers, of course, I love them all. And, you know, Walt has this piece arguing that basically the, the crisis is the result of, um, like, the liberal idealism of America in the 90s, and it's like this idea that you could, like, ex- expand these institutions like NATO coming up against the clashing reality of, um, like, Russian influence, Russian uh, Russian neighbourhood. And Seva has a, a reply that I think lays out very well the case against a certain type of realism that it basically sees the US as the only actor and the US as the the only or the only like actor with agency the only one where where it's influenced by like that can make mistakes everybody else is just being strategically realistic the US like the US can go wrong Um, whereas as 
uh, you know, several points out, we have this better situation in which like this, this like Russian revanchism and nationalism and all these things that are uh, driven, in, deeply influenced by domestic politics, not just by some grand concept of strategy or like un immutable laws of the world, are very deeply like influencing what happens. Like this is the result of choices by Russia, choices by Putin and by by the people around him and to some extent by the Russian public themselves. And, you know, trying to, and this this is something that often occurs to me reading realist pieces is that it, they really benefited from getting the good name too. You know, they, they swept in there like the Bolsheviks, you know, the, the majoritarians and just took the name that sounds like, oh, well, we're the realists. We're talking about the world as it really is. Um, and, you know, that, that often elides like, just all these these vast kind of vast capacity of all of the world to fuck up. So uh, I didn't read Walt's piece, uh, which which Seva sort of summarizes in the intro. Walt, as I know him, and understand uh, his uh, perspective, which is very consistent over the years, is a classic defensive realist. Um, so Walt seems to be attacking the sort of liberal institutionalist uh, um, and Clintonian. Um, ambition to expand NATO on Russia's um, uh, frontier um, on its boundary and saying that that has sort of backed Russia into a corner and this was inevitable, this, this backlash which we're seeing now in Russian aggression from Crimea to the Ukraine. Um, but it seems to me that in the counter argument here, um, which I think is, is generally spot on uh, in Seba's piece, that there's a bit of a blurred line between defensive realism and offensive realism. Um, so it seems to me that this argument, uh, which Seba is making, uh, is essentially saying that, uh, well, well, let me just read here from a paragraph. He says, a better realist story might go something like this. Great powers always seek to establish regional primacy, whether it's the United States or anyone else. When the Soviet Union collapsed, its successor state lost its regional primacy and the West was able to move in. So as he sees it, Russia has greater strategic interests here and it's near abroad. It's uh, obvious that it will seek to reassert primacy here. So he sees Russia as sort of acting as a traditional offensive realist state here, uh, as you described, right? Walt's piece sort of strips uh, secondary powers like Russia of agency in its argument that the United States is the hegemon, the United States is the one that's fucking up here. Um, but to sort of reframe the analysis, we need to realize that states like Russia have their own interests um, in offensive realist senses here. Um, but it seems to me there's a bit of a mismatch there in, in assuming that uh, Walt is arguing on this this ground, which I, I don't I don't know if he is, but just to sort of allied to that difference between defensive realism and offensive realism, I think overlooks a bit of the finer point of, of where uh, this motivation is truly stemming from. I think that, the, you know, this is part of the, again, I hesitate to use the word, but attraction of crises like these, they uh, allow us these really interesting points to kind of test theory, to sort of, to, to apply, like, what can be fairly abstract stuff to these real life conflicts. Um, and that, that in part is why we're seeing this kind of, you know, whirlpool of not just um, the, not just the sort of area specialists, but the, but the IR world as a whole, like commenting, writing about um, and pitching me on this. Sweet. So for the three headlines this week, we've got option number one. 
Belarusian President Lushenko pledges humanitarian and military support to Russia amidst the recent Ukraine crisis. Number two is the IMF urges El Salvador to reverse its decision on making Bitcoin the nation's legal tender. And the third option is find the resignation of President Sergei, the president of Kazakhstan on Tuesday. Violent protests continue to rock the capital and its largest cities. Sadly, I actually know this one because I read it and it's number two. The IMF yep. asked, asked uh, El Salvador to reverse the, uh, the Bitcoin as legal tender. And, you know, this is an entirely reasonable move by the IMF because Bitcoin is bullshit and dangerous bullshit and <laughs> has been a disaster in El Salvador. This has been a disaster pretty much everywhere. But of course, um, uh, the El Salvadorian president, Bukele, um, who is basically, you know, a sort of imagine if Elon Musk was an even worse person and also was the president of a country. Um, he's a he's a con artist who's obsessed with his own sense of clout, with being cool on Twitter, um, and with what seem to be some fairly shady financial schemes, um, and has you know reacted to this with basically a temper tantrum, um, mixed in which the lives and welfare of the people of his country seem very low down on his priority list compared to seeming cool to other Bitcoiners. And he's uh, um, the latest scheme, I believe, is um, launching what's supposed to be a volcano city with a, a volcano Bitcoin city in which supposedly cheap energy in a place that doesn't have, doesn't actually have very cheap energy will allow like Bitcoin mining. Now, all of this this is, of course, like uh, worsened by the fact that he also bought a bunch of Bitcoin with uh, the National Reserves and, and then Bitcoin fell by like 50 percent. So, you know, it's like, like, you know, great start really to the whole project. Um, I think we're, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to see, you know, more of this, um, uh, you know, Rand Roderick has called this, this these kind of like showmen, these like guys who these like this weird new type of populism where it's like meme populism. You're going to get more and more of these guys like popping up in the next few years. And there's always this kind of, oh, they're so nifty. They're so, they're so neat. They, they, they understand things. And then they're basically just the same old, you know, like con artists and assholes that they've always been, except they have Twitter. James, I feel like you just uh, peered into a really disturbing crystal ball here talking about Elon Musk and uh, his ambitions and this sort of the Joe Rogan types uh, aspiring to power. You know, there, there are several really dark scenarios I can imagine unfolding along those lines. I mean, the future of the U.S. is President Tucker Carlson or President um, or President Elon Musk, I fear, at least at some point. With, uh, like these just this. absolutely toxic people. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Sweet. So we got three tweets from myself today uh, with some help from Gabby and Hunter. So the first one is from Amanda Shaw, who is a senior China analyst at the Crisis Group. This was a bit of a thread, so I'm just going to paraphrase it a bit, but it's basically saying that PRC officials may be signaling a shift on Taiwan policy as they've now in several times called the policy the party overall strategy for solving the Taiwan issue in the new era. And at the annual Taiwan Work Conference, a Politburo Standing Committee member, Wang Yang, used the phrase and did not mention the one China principle 
And this has been used in the context of the upcoming 20th Party Conference. Do you have any thoughts on that, James? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're kind of back at the stage with Chinese analysis where we're, we're having to um, really go deep into like these, these people's daily type phrases, like the, um, to, to try and get any sense of what's happening at the centre. I think like there, there is a feeling, and you know, we don't know what this means yet. Like there's there's a change in language. We we don't know what the content is. And the content language will come to signify something, but we really can't tell what it is as yet. My guess would be that it will be a relatively conciliatory approach. And I say that not because I think there's any like great change in Beijing, but um in terms of you know what they 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 genuinely think of. Taiwan is theirs, like it's really drummed in. Um, but I think that the pushback over Taiwan last year and the vehemence of like new support for it has caught them off guard a bit. And they might be trying like a little bit of readjustment. Um, now that said, this is she's China, it could very well go the other way. We could be looking at like full-blown nationalist madness. But I would say that the odds are towards like a a slightly softened policy. Well, it certainly runs counter to uh, the the narrative of imminent invasion uh, that I see playing out in Washington. Or many people are forcing a connection with the Ukraine crisis uh, as well as Afghanistan previously. Yeah, and I mean that always strikes me. You know, any argument that that sort of assumes like a some sort of universal sense of like our opponents are looking at our will and X and will will that that will show how we move and why. I think really doesn't bear out very well. Like you know there are. People do read things in strange ways and make these connections, but these these problems always come down to like much more regional and individualized sort of crises than like these this this image of like big general like uh, a big general sense of like the U.S. is weak, the U.S. is strong, the U.S. is ready to commit, the U.S. is not ready to commit. I mean, you know, there was a fair amount of Chinese policy made based off Somalia, for instance, though, with, uh, you know, the Black Hawk Down incident of this idea that, like, the U.S. would be unwilling to fight, the U.S. wasn't, wasn't committed. And to some degree, like, the, the fact that the U.S. then got into two very stupid wars for a long time possibly reversed that. Um, but these, yeah, a lot of, and, you know, a lot of this, like, the, the ways that we think things are seen in Washington by Beijing are often very different from the ways that Beijing actually sees them from the discussions that happen within the Chinese elite. And I'm not, this doesn't mean that the Chinese elite are any more well-informed or like culturally capable of reading Washington. They're often way off base. They're just like very different discussions from the kind of Beijing must be thinking X kind of, um, Beijing must be, and especially because all these always seem to come down to like our opponents imagining imagining us to be weak because the president has done something that I personally dislike. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a fine point there. Um, and I always know that there's a bit of a Fox News element here when I see uh, texts from um, you know, my, my rather Trumpian relatives uh, to the effect that, you know, what's going on in Ukraine signals US weakness and therefore China is about to invade uh, Taiwan. And I'm thinking, you know, you don't know much about international affairs. I'm really unclear why this is suddenly an argument that uh, it, you know you're putting it out there. It, it's definitely a line of thought that's uh, echoed in in sort of the conservative media, and, and uh, some people hold more seriously uh, than others with reasons for convictions. Um, but it always strikes me uh, that I, I, I side with you actually here that I think there's a lot more 
of a regional uh, and local reasons or incentives at play, less so the sort of grand balance of power and sort of simple calculations based on US putting one foot forward or stepping back. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's just a degree to which, you know, Americans of all political persuasions can be inclined to basically see the rest of the world as just this grand mirror in which America is reflected. Um, and therefore, everything must come down to, you know, American, to American decisions and American policy making. And the truth is, you know, I think like most of the world's crises, uh, you, know, you know, there's often it's not that America isn't involved. It's that the American role, what America can do or can't do is, do is often much, much less than, than anybody thinks on the right or left. Absolutely. And with that, maybe let's go into uh, my tweet pick which is a little bit of piss-taking of the, the Twitter left, or parts of the Twitter left, and it's from, um, uh, it's from Mason Hurston Horde, who's a uh, transit organizer and uh, DSA member. And um, it goes, thinking about posting something like the October Revolution was a color revolution carried out by the paid agents of German imperialism, and then never logging into Twitter again. So of course this is a joke about like the actual circumstances of the uh, of the the Russian Revolution, where the where Lenin was sent back by the Germans um, to Russia in, in exactly in order to to take to take part take part in the revolution or the the after the, the second stage of the revolution. But it's also you know a very sharp party I think of this um, this tendency on the left to try and de or this tendency on the part of the imperial the, the the supposedly anti-imperialist, but actually pro-imperialist, as long as it's done by somebody other than Americans, left to try and like delegitimize revolution, to imagine that like there's foreign influence, CIA agents, whatever, behind every uprising, behind every protest, you know, essentially this deeply paranoid conspiratorial view of the world in which, again, the agency of everybody else, the agency of, you know, Kazakh protesters or um, the Ukrainians in Maidan, all this kind of thing, is reduced to like, U.S. puppet masters supposedly pulling the strings. Yeah, uh, th this tweet was a bit over my head, I confess, but I think part of the genius of it also is is that it suggests that there are really uh, truly unexpected uh, consequences from um, sort of uh, designs of any uh, so-called color revolution, right? That you can never predict how events will pan out or uh, backfire on the original purported puppet masters at play there. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things where, you know, People, people imagine this like great ability to control or shape the world when so much of the so much of the world is you know chaos and backlash and um, and coincidence anyway. hundred percent. I, I just got to say I envy you, Hunter, for not under, understanding this because half my Twitter feed is just the <laughs> Twitter tankies just going off this kind of stuff all the time. I, I, I've had to explain what tankies are to a few people, and I'm like, oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. You know, living in your like blissful. I mean, and you know, and this is a group that is tiny in the real world. I mean, teeny tiny. Like real, like normal people do not think that Stalin was good. Like this is, it, it's just like the kind of the equivalent of libertarians. You know how libertarians don't actually exist in real life, um, but there are millions of them online. Tankies are like that, but on the left. Cool. So my next tweet is from Anka Panda, a Stanton senior fellow and friend of the pod, and so this kind of plays into um probably kind of touched on the quick hits so he's riffing off a Paul Musgrave piece and says that on balance it still seems that Russian military action is more likely than not 
but post hoc rationalizations in the case where there isn't escalation will be interesting. Narratives emphasizing deterrence success are often unfalsifiable. This kind of comes back to the discussion we were having at the start, like how do you how do you test whether the deterrence worked? Um, and I, I, you, you can see the failures, but you can't see the successes, and that gives a lot of scope for people both to claim that that it doesn't matter, and for people to claim that it does when it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this all, this reminds me of um, an interesting uh, and, and somewhat heated exchange um, between Ryan Evans and Josh Rogan, a columnist at the Washington Post, that I saw on Twitter. Uh, interesting that we call this segment "Stay Off Twitter" because I feel like it, it's actually just saying, "Hey, check out these." Uh, exchanges on Twitter, you don't want to miss them. Uh, But to summarize, in case uh, we do want to drive home the point uh, that that listeners should, you know, stay off Twitter and not uh, spend all their time looking at the contents of the Twitter exchanges we're discussing. uh, Basically, Josh Rogan was criticizing this element of this, uh, the debate saying, you know, the threat of sanctions is not deterrence. Uh, and Ryan Evans was countering, if I recall correctly, say you completely misunderstand deterrence. You know, deterrence is, is exactly the threat uh, of imminent action, which uh, will deter potential action by the uh, object of the, the said deterrence. Clearly, uh, I think Ankit is onto something here in saying that uh, this will require some post hoc uh, rationalization rather than um, the sort of speculative sort of claims that we've seen to say that deterrence is not working, right? Because we can't ultimately judge whether or not deterrence is working uh, based on events that have not yet happened. Sweet. Um, so the third tweet is from Jeffrey Lewis, who's a professor at the Middlebury Institute and also a friend of the pod. And so this tweet, he's criticizing a US government official who's been quoted as saying, Sanctions in the event of a Russian invasion, gradualism of the past is out, and this time we'll start at the top of the escalation ladder and stay there. And basically, Jeffrey in reply says, boy howdy, US officials just using words and concepts without knowing what they mean, and he's uh, pairing this with Herman Kahn's apocalyptic escalation ladder. The, you know, and I think the, the point here, of course, is that the top of the escalation ladder is, in fact, like a general war. You know, it's... Uh, all-out destruction and, and what the official actually means is you know start is going to sort of like step six or seven on the escalation ladder uh, as, as as originally laid out but it's i mean look language bleeds through in all kinds of ways and while jeff's right i don't think we could like ultimately all these things are kind of metaphors some of them better metaphors than others and it's not and people are going to end up using them messily yeah, I mean, I can't think of a specific example on the spot, but it's, there's been quite a few um, kind of gaffes of people using language. I think there was one with Biden the other day. Oh, yeah, there was a, you know, limited intrusion or whatever it was. And, yeah. you know, I mean, this, this is, again, one of the things of, I mean, one of the things of crisis is that every word really does get read very, very carefully. Um, and but But also the truth is, like, people misread language all the time anyway. You can use the most precise accurate language that you think is precise and accurate language and people who don't understand the context will get excited about it regardless um, um there was in fact a, a funny little twitter spasm of people getting getting like upset about the use of the term lethal aid like as in the you know the u.s delivers 30 tons of lethal aid to to ukraine despite and being like this is you know new speak and a euphemism and like well first of all this isn't really a euphemism like lethal is as un, un- un-euphemistic as you get. I mean, you can say like the US delivers 30 tons of death bots, but 
Um, but also lethal aid as a term has been around for a long time. Like this isn't a new term, it's just one they haven't seen before and got excited about. So, you know, on the one hand, it is incumbent on everybody to watch their language. On the other hand, um, that's no guarantee that, that other people and including the other side in the crisis aren't going to massively misread you anyway. And it strikes me that um, that rhetoric of the top of the escalation ladder uh, implicitly seeds the leverage that that you're seeking to achieve by uh, having an escalation ladder in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want you want somewhere to go. It, it feels sometimes like we're reinventing the wheel a lot here. Like we used to have a better, or at least a more standard procedure for handling crises with other with other big powers. And because we had because the US had you know 20 years really of not having to do it, maybe 25. Yeah, I'd say two decades of really not having to. To, ha- to have those kind of confrontations, there's a little mm-hmm. bit of a sense that the establishment is rusty about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think partly the seriousness, the great seriousness with which the Biden administration is taking this challenge probably stems back to the fact that so many in that administration were around in the Obama administration and, and previously when, when Russia had made moves um, on its neighbors, uh, you know, Crimea, for instance, um, unless I'm getting my timeline wrong, was that during the Bush administration? And that uh, was no, Crimea is 2014. 2014, and then Georgia was 2008. Oh, I'm thinking of Georgia, 2008, right. So maybe yeah. we can uh, cut that. Uh, but in any case, um, I, I think the perceived and, and real inaction uh, w- is largely casting a shadow here over the current uh, crisis. And I think administration officials are going to be very careful about perhaps primarily for legacy issues more than actual um, strategic interests in Ukraine, trying to be careful about uh, not fucking this up um, and and do and showing some backbone to to say that you know we are here this time for Ukraine you know NATO resilience um, needs to uh, be shored up. All right, time for armchair analysis, where we look at a different article each week. All right, for this week's armchair analysis, we have an essay put forward in International Crisis Group by Richard Gowan and Ashish Pradhan, titled, Why the UN Security Council Stumbles in Responding to Coup. Now, incidentally, this piece came out, I think, the day before a military coup was announced in Burkina Faso, uh, so really uh, emblematic of a trend, a really worrying trend we've seen in the last year of military coups around the world. The subline here, or subheader, um, is... More often than not, calculations of real pol- realpolitik hold the UN Security Council back from taking action to deter or reverse military takeovers. Yet UN member states can use the body as a platform for efforts to keep soldiers in the barracks and away from politics. So um, the, the piece points out rightly, I think, that the UN Security Council has oftentimes failed to respond adequately in ways that reflect its own internal divisions uh, to military coups around the world, including recently those in Sudan, Mali, Chad, Guinea, Myanmar, uh, and before that, Thailand and Egypt. Um, The authors write that, in general, the council has seemed very keen for other actors to take the lead in responding to coups, although with varying degrees of conviction and cohesion. Uh, So in the case of Africa, the authors point out the uh, relative activism of regional multilateral groups like the African Union and ECOWAS 
And in the case of, of uh, Myanmar's coup in February of last year, uh, the UN Security Council and generally the international communities hope that ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, would take a more activist approach and solve this uh, within their own uh, regional forum. And I think it highlights a clear preference for multilateral institutions by the preeminent multilateral institution, the United Nations here. But the authors point out three reasons in particular for such inaction, confusion, uh, geopolitics, geopolitical interests, and the UN Security Council's lack of leverage in those countries concerned. You know, on, on the note of confusion, uh, the authors point to some of the Chinese uh, diplomats' um, own sort of un uncertainty about the state of affairs in Myanmar and Beijing's uh, interests in that country and, and you know, not really being in direct communication about how to best handle diplomacy within the UN uh, based on sort of the uh, central authorities back home, what they might want and, and whether to uh, approve of or push back against uh, UN Security Council condemnation of the coup. The US's own disarray here um, and, and that of Western governments uh, in how to embrace Myanmar's national unity government, which is standing up to present uh, a unified front against the military junta in Myanmar. Um, I recently read an excerpt in a piece written by uh, an analyst stating that, you know, he had been, this author had been lobbying for Western governments to recognize the national unity government in Myanmar, which represents the democratically elected government that the military ousted. And one response he got from a Western diplomat was, well, you know, we would, but we don't want to be seen as undermining the National League for Democracy, which of course is largely representative of the NUG and just shows how little some of these diplomats actually understand the situation in these countries. Now, this piece would sort of be uh, blasé, except for the fact that I think what they point to as a solution here is actually relatively low-hanging fruit and common sense stuff, which I think makes a lot of sense personally. So the authors are arguing that to sort of mitigate some of the confusion, geopolitical divisions, and lack of leverage, what the UN Security Council should be doing instead is just paying more diplomatic attention to these countries making trips to countries of concern where we have seen clear signs of instability, uh, either threats of military coup, which often do precipitate um, said coups. Um, you know, those concerns are often voiced aloud and civil military divisions do sort of break out into the open, uh, as well as hosting civil society dialogues within these countries. Um, and just showing that, you know, the international community is watching because oftentimes that might deter potential uh, coup makers. But in any case, I, I think it does point to the need for greater dialogue here, greater participation, and a bit of diplomatic activism from a body that we've seen uh, repeatedly fail to address some of these situations uh, in, in recent years. And, and, you know, democracies around the world see themselves as under siege and are trying to shore up uh, the sort of democratic order and democratic resilience against authoritarian resurgence. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything this week, I've got two questions for you, James. The first one is from Sam Villanova, with James being British and the team being American, Kiwi, and whatever else. Don't include whatever else, but I'm South African. <laughs> we hear lots of these countries, China watching, seeing, and their think tank world. Would you have any insights about the state of China focused analysts, academia, such academia in Canada? 
also, if by any chance you have some advice for Canadian students going into grad school, you'd like to make a career in this field. So, you know, I don't know the Canadian side super well, but I know it a little bit. And what it seems to me that you're having there is a sort of delayed version of the experience of Australia, where you suddenly have this kind of public discussion about Chinese influence um, a few years ago, that uh, where something went from being a kind of, uh, you know, sort of a specialist issue to being one that the public was broadly and widely interested in. And as in Australia, sometimes that's caught up with like racism and with, Th uh, feelings about stuff like Chinese acquisition of Vancouver property, for instance. Um, but it's also kind of like hardened. The discussion has also like significantly hardened. And one of the big factors of that was, of course, the uh, the kidnapping tension of the two Michaels, um, one of whom Michael Kovrig I know well, I, I didn't know the other. And that really kind of turned, you know, that really kind of put China on the radio, on the radar as a threat in Canada, I think, because it was such a personal issue these two um these two canadians one of them a former diplomat um like taken by the chinese government and basically held as hostages for uh, until a essentially a, an exchange was arranged to get um to get the huawei uh cf um what was she just the not the ceo she was the cfo i think this extradition and so there's very much a feeling in in, in canada china watching i think like the, like the 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 more militant side is definitely um ascendant right now and but there's also that strange kind of canadian feeling of well you know it's the americans who have the real power here and like a lot of that time and effort is put into influencing american politics rather than canadian directly um, and so you know the, the dilemma for a young canadian like uh like student i guess is is really are you going to stay inside canadian politics which is you know great and important domestically but can be somewhat secondary on the international stage or are you essentially going to pitch yourself towards the the work the American world, or the or more broadly speaking, the North American world? And I don't. And really, that depends on what you want to do. If you've got and if you if you're going to do China stuff, you know, you probably are looking at come at wanting to be at least partially in the DC conversation, um, as well as the Canadian conversation. The second question is from Pantsman is best. I'd love to ask Mr. Palmer about the South China Sea. So what is the difference between the four Shah policy and the nine dash line policy we're also familiar with? And would this policy also be invalid under UNCLOS? Does this make it a harder legal case for those countries with contesting claims? So, so the four, so the truth is I do not know the difference between the four Shah policy and the nine dash line policy. Four Shah was introduced in, I think, like in, which is literally just like four sands. I think was only introduced in like 2016 or 17. Um, yeah, though they might have been, you know, I think they floated it then and they've gone and they've been they've been kind of replacing it now, sort of replacing nine dash line with it now. Um, it's it's only come up in more stuff. I don't know if they I don't know if there's any real meaning on the ground if it's just that like nine dash that like nine nine dash had become kind of infamous. Um, I would look to somebody like Bill Beaton, who knows like the South China Sea stuff, like the back of his hand, um, for, for an answer there. In general, like almost every Chinese claim to the South China Sea is, is or at least the, the at least half invalid under own class, like there's a, all these are very maximalist claims based off like dubious territoriality, um, but, you know, really drummed into like, into Chinese citizens as like, a, a, an important part of, of national sovereignty. 
Um, and most of all, it's, you know, it, it just, it, it mostly comes down to finding ways to like bully other countries out of trying to together some sort of multilateral resistance to these, to these claims. But on the actual, on the actual legal side of it, I've not looked at the full sounds policy closely enough to have a, a great grasp of that yet. Yeah, I think the primary difference here, right, is that the nine dash line sort of draws a line literally around the South China Sea and carves out the waters Beijing claims, which is clearly at odds with UNCLOS and uh, was decided as such um, by the 2016 uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration. And the four Shahs would say specifically pointing on a map saying these four island groups, the Pratas, Paracels, Spratleys, and Macclesfield Bank, if I'm reading that correctly, uh, are uh, Chinese territory. I think, uh, I, I don't know enough about UNCLOS and international maritime law specifically, but I would imagine that these uh, claims still butt up against the uh, disputant claims, uh, particularly of the Philippines, Brunei, and Vietnam, if they fall within the exclusive economic zones or um, 200 nautical mile limits of those countries. It's such a, you know, maritime law is so fascinating because it is one of the few, like, truly international um, things and all these, and it has all these wonderful things in it where it's like going back to, well, you know, basically we introduced this to handle cannibalism in the 1750s. Um, but I do not, but, you know, like, you, you're right, Hadid, it's far too, it is also too technical an area for us to give very great answers about it. Well, I always, uh, uh, you know, I defer to others on, on this topic. I, I'm uh, listeners to the good work of, you know, um, James mentioned Bill Hayton. Uh, I would also uh, suggest uh, Greg Poling at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, AMTI, or Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. But Greg, Greg is really outstanding on this topic and could probably uh, correct me and, and the foolishness I just put forward. Um, this one is from Drow DS. Who do you find the most insufferable and unbearable? Realists climbing the pedal of intellectual superiority and paternalism over the others? Or liberals and interventionists who persist on the same formula that if you double down hard enough, the bad guys will fall into line. Well, that, that pretty much covers everyone. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think you know. I think everybody can be. I think everybody can be equally irritating, um, and also equally valuable. Um, I would say I tend to get, you know, as probably came across earlier, I probably get a little bit more annoyed at realists just because I think. They, they, because they grabbed the good name, they often kind of make an assum assumptions about, like, that. they often try and portray things as some immutable fact, of, like, rather than as decisions involving, you know, moral choices, uh, which the, the more sort of thoughtful, the plenty of thoughtful realists who don't do this, but I do think it can be, it can be one of those, like, lazy philosophies, um, and which, you know, which the lazy philosophies are tends to vary depending on the, the national mood. I mean, liberal internationalism was an extremely lazy philosophy in the 1990s, for instance. It was such an easy default position because it seemed as though, you know, the world was going our way, as it were. All the people who didn't want to have to think really sort of flocked to it to some degree. So, you know, there's my, there's my answer. It depends on, who's, depends on who's winning any point. They tend to be the most irritating. <laughs> I would have said um, that uh, John Mearsheimer was the most insufferable uh, realist uh, for many years, having having read his work consistently over the years, until I saw him lecture publicly, and I was just in awe of his stage presence and ability to uh, ad lib and, and really uh, entertain his audience. Yeah, it's funny how some people who who are just very very good speakers and and irritating writers, and also vice versa, like there are people who they're many brilliant writers who are appalling speakers. 
I can't really detract from John Mearsheimer's writing, uh, which is just a bit a bit dense. Typically, uh, you know, anyone any uh, IR student listening who's read uh, the tragedy of great power politics will know it's it's quite a bit to wade through um, and a bit repetitive. Uh, but speaking, he's full of life and energy, which surprised me. So there we go, folks. Look up the YouTube John Mearsheimer lectures, if they, which I kind of assume exist. It seems like somebody must have filmed him. Mm -hmm. Oh, surely. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Check out buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to uh, buy us a coffee. Also, be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. And cottonbureau.com. Yes, if you want some sweet merch, uh, check out cottonbureau.com and search for Undiplomatic Podcast. Uh, I've got several pieces myself and love the stuff. And thanks again to our guest host, James Palmer from Foreign Policy, for joining today. <laughs>